0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we're offering four conversations from episode 48, Closing Thoughts on an Eventful Nash Summer. In this conversation, Stephen Harrison uses the results of the Fruxaferman study to discuss the range of results we can expect with different FGF agents over time, and takes the panel in two different directions. A question on the long-term roles that FGF21s are likely to play, and later, he hijacks the conversation, as he puts it, to discuss why we do not create more H&E slides from a single biopsy liver sample in clinical trials. This episode is full of both laughter and ideas that will challenge you. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups.
1: Stephen Harrison let me just go back to the Fruxa-Furman paper. I, I just use EFX for short, so I don't say something I'm not supposed to say accidentally, you know, when trying to pronounce that word. But, you know, Mazin, you, you made it. You made some good points about the provocative results that this study provided and some of the insights we were able to see. Oh, very proof of concept, right? First biopsy results to ever be seen and in an FGF-21. We had some non-invasive data from BMS earlier, but really no no biopsy data related to this mechanism of action. So it was exciting to see. Now, I don't think we can extrapolate that what we see with this FGF21, we would see with every FGF21. We know there are differences in scaffolding and the chemical structure of each of these compounds. And just like with FXR, it's not all are created equal. I suspect the same is probably true for the FGF21s. But you commented on the histopathology, and I think those results, I agree, are, are, are very good. But as you know, there's more to treating NASH than just histopathology. When we look at treating the whole patient and getting after the metabolic syndrome that exists in a lot of these patients, one of the additional things I like about ifruxifermin is what we see with atherogenic lipids and glycemic control and even weight loss, which again, if that is substantiated in a larger phase 2b and even phase 3, that would speak well for a therapy that can not only modulate histopathology, but can lead a big dent in the metabolic components that are deranged in this disease. So maybe a question to you, Mazen is where do you see injectables like this fitting in to the paradigm of treatment, assuming that everything we see here today holds up through phase to be in phase three. And one thing we didn't mention is the side effect profile. There there were issues with some GI tolerability, albeit most were mild. They're still present and something that we're going to be faced with. So maybe I'll just ask that question to you. Where, where do you see this class of drug fitting as as we look towards the future? That's a
2: great question. So as you said, the, you're getting additional metabolic effect, which is going to help with the lipid panel, the weight and all that. The question is when you compare it to another medication like semaglutide, which one you would use for other metabolic effect? I think this is a drug that I will use early on in the process, especially if you end up when they're phase 2B and phase 3 with antifibrotic effect because they have GI side effects and try to defat in the liver, get the initial metabolic lipid weight signal and then use them about six months to a year, and eventually, once I get the effect on the liver, effect on lipid panel and all that, try eventually to stop them and continue with more long-term drug. I think with injectables, I would like not to exceed one year, especially if they have side effects. That's my initial thinking, especially with the newer also classes like FGFs, 21s, 19s and all that. You can argue that GLP ones, can you can continue longer than that because we have much longer history with them from the type 2 diabetes world. But for the FGF 21s and 19s initially, we will limit them for one year. And I think they will do the job very nicely if you have such a remarkable results that they defat the and liver in such a short spectrum.
1: That's great. insight. Mazen. I appreciate you sharing that. I'll follow that up with just a quick question about the comment I made relative to are all FGF21s created equal? Given that, you know, we have results from what, 42, I think, 42 liver biopsies. There were 40 in the treatment arm and two placebo patients. It's a small number, but, but it's very positive, at least in what we've seen to date. Do you subscribe to the notion like I do that it is likely that all FGF21s are not going to react the same way or behave the same way like, like the FXR story? Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, there are definitely differences between the FGFs 19 and 21s and between the 21s and 19s. I'm, I'm in general very careful when interpret the results with a small sample size. I'm encouraged by the fact that you had liver biopsy results glad you threw them out there within the design and I hope that will hold in the phase 2D and the phase 3, which I, I don't see why not with such a signal with the ALT and MRI-PDFF and some
1: initial data with liver biopsy. And and just to follow on to that, we did a subsequent cohort of patients that were well-compensated cirrhotics and dosed them for a similar time and, and biopsied them as well after that same time frame and presented that data at EASL that hasn't been published yet. But boy, just to get your take on what you thought of those results, and, and maybe speaking to your comment about, you know, using it up front in a more advanced population, we've been looking for cirrhotic therapy for a while, right? Listen, that study, I think when we, you presented it, all of us, it was
2: music to our ears, whatever you want to call it, to our eyes. We're all pleased and happy. I guess all of us want to see it translating into larger sample size. The key was you saw such a significant improvement within short time. Don't take me wrong. It was too hard to believe that in within a short time but you thought so i want to see it in a larger sample size but it's great to see that and that we started moving the needle in this group i think the very encouraging part was its safety impact. so you can use it in esterotic with a safe and as you say you, you made a dent in that group so you definitely should study it in that group with that agent in particular and, and go with it so very encouraging results and i look forward to see large large cohort with the results
1: hey roger i'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hijack this because we need to have this discussion on this podcast because I'm gonna shift gears the more I think about the results from the Furman and then Mason's very apropos comments about small sample size we need to see it played out in larger subsets of patients this is going to be a complete pivot but it got me thinking about our endpoints and what we're using to define endpoints and when we look at Nash resolution we're so beholden to a balloon dependent being present or it not being present, and knowing the heterogeneity of ballooning degeneration in the liver of NASH patients, knowing the sampling variability that exists, the regression to the mean, the kappa statistics between pathologist reads, it got me thinking a couple weeks ago, and I began to socialize this, and I think this podcast is a great way to bring this up. Why do we only look at one H&E slide when we do these clinical trials? Like, to me, that's dog Where did that come from, that we would only send in one trichrome and one H&E for analysis, particularly knowing that this disease is so heterogeneous? And if we're going to be still beholden to that endpoint, why don't we simply just Look at more H&Es off the same liver biopsy. So the reason why I asked that question, and it's not a rhetorical question, it's a it's a real question, is when I was back in the military before I retired, I would run across these cases of NASH patients that for all the world looked like NASH. The, the architecture was disrupted, lots of fat, lots of fibrosis, lots of inflammation, in fact, quite a bit of portal inflammation to go along with that more F3-ish type fibrosis bridging fibrosis type pattern, but we couldn't see a balloon cell. And and finally, I just did a little small anecdotal study, and I had my pathologist go take extra cuts from these livers. And it turns out about 25% of the time, we were able to find very classical ballooning. So to me, a very simple pragmatic principle is if we're still beholden to this endpoint, why don't we just look at a couple H&Es? We take the highest deatosis score, the highest inflammation, and the highest ballooning score from amongst those three, and that's what we read out. The data is telling us we're not looking at enough tissue. So let's just cut a few more slides and look at it. There's no more risk to the patient. And and let's be honest, the screen fail cost to sponsors at the time you screen fail liver biopsy is prohibitive. And if we can pay a couple bucks to have a few extra HDs done on patients and we can save 25% of our population from screen failing, that would be huge for the field. I I just, I'm sorry to hijack this conversation, but I want to ask Mazin his thoughts on that. What am what am I missing?
2: I cannot agree more. I cannot tell you how many times that my local pathologist saw a ballooning cell. I sent them. They did not see it. And they were both right. It's just a different cut. I cannot agree more on that. I mean, I can talk about more than an hour that you guys gave me at the beginning. The other thing also is like the NASH resolution, and I can go to that for another hour. Why were we got rid of the two points NASH improvement? And I talked to the regulators and asked them why, and I got no answer. Lastly, I'm actually trying to argue that because of all what you said, and I'm not saying do it tomorrow, why we don't all sit down and we did webinars in the ASLD and we started talking about, and I got accused as like being too fast, too immature, and I said no, I just want to start the conversation. We have MRE, PDFF, fibro scans, L, Fib4, that we can combine a lot of. Them are looking at the entire liver, not just one spot, and they started correlating with outcome. Can we just sit down and all of us talk about what we can use as a composite endpoint for our phase three? Lastly. I think also this, and we keep beating on the same thing, rather than looking at what you said, also collagen content and those path AI and I guess they can be biased a little bit but there's a systemic bias if you use them on the machine over and over and over. So I think that we just have to do next generation outcomes, which is artificial intelligence and then the path to NITs and registry track. but I like these multiple
0: calls. I like the multiple you like, slides tremendously. It's always puzzled me why we thought one was a decent sample for a liver itself, since in fact what we're doing is each slide represents a liver, but livers are way bigger than the slice we're taking, and that this slide is the only a portion. Of the slide it makes a lot of sense to me that we think about it that way.
1: And now, back to Roger. We
0: hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, October 6th, hopefully discussing the new clinical care pathways published today in Gastroenterology. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye. Now.